thought it'd be a good study for us. Eight commitments. There's six. I had six last night, and then I added to this morning. So there's eight commitments of the believers of FCCJ, First Christian Church of Jerusalem. Um, we have a tendency to forget and to forget the simple truths, the basic truths of Christian faith. So thought be a good study for us. Remember, just our our core commitment as a believer to the local church. To begin to share with you, one of the reasons I am particularly happy uh, this month is it's the beginning of football season. Ever since a few, maybe a few years ago, we're playing soccer. I'm all good. I'm done with soccer. I'll be out there. But, man, I just, I'm just like falling in love with this game. Um, it's playing with the brothers, watching it on TV, and now... You know, professional football was always good, but we discovered, like, the joy of college football. It looks like we got two good local teams this year, uh, UCLA and USC. I think UCLA won last night, right? Just barely. They won, though. And USC, like, uh, one-handedly the first, first week. And great debate. You know, UCLA is not ranked. USC is, what, top 10, I think, right? If that. Top number three, okay, maybe going up a little bit. Um, there's some debate about which is the better team. But humbly, I'm not really biased either way. I can root for both, so don't be angry with me. But, you know, without debate, uh, no doubt that USC has more ardent fans, right? USC has more uh, students, faculty, and alumni support than UCLA. That's the truth, right? <laughs> And I saw it firsthand. Last, last season, I was able to go to a game. And, you know, I, I've been to USC before, but I, just, I, I just noticed all these people chanting in unison. They're all dressed in, I guess, burgundy. Is that their color? Red or burgundy and yellow, gold, whatever. <laughs> They're all, like, doing push-ups and claps, and they were singing songs in unison. And I was thinking to myself, this is a cult, right? <laughs> I, I, could, I couldn't discern, is this a football game or Reverend Moon's Unification Conference? <laughs> I mean, it was the fanaticism of the USC fans was a little too much. <laughs> um, now, I read of a guy this week named, uh, named Giles Pellerin. He's a USC football fan. He's 87 years old. And he recently attended his 750th consecutive USC game, home and away. So it's not just 750 home games. All the games for the past 69 years, he has not missed. Right. One year, he had an appendectomy, emergency appendectomy, just five days before a game. He was still hospitalized on Saturday morning. He told the nurses he was going for a walk. <laughs> and he went to watch USC, went to the stadium to watch the game. Someone asked him, you know, why are you making such sacrifices for a football team? And his answer was, quote, that is just all part of being a fan. You love a team, you're a fan, you're committed, and you are there. Wherever they travel, wherever they're playing, I adjust my schedule around USC football. And a little thing like an emergency appendectomy is not going to keep me from my team. Go to great lengths. He went to great lengths to, to outwardly show 
and demonstrate his love and loyalty to USC football. Now, you know where I'm going with this already, right? Such commitment by sports fans put, puts many professing Christians to shame. Puts professing believers to shame in terms of our commitment or lack of commitment to the local church. If we just compare uh, a sports fan's commitment to the team, to watching a game, to an average Christian and their commitment to Christ, the local church, it's, it's an embarrassment. Chuck Colson said, It is scandalous that so many believers today have such a low view of the church. They see the, their Christian lives as a solitary exercise, Jesus and me. They move from congregation to congregation, or they don't associate with the church, with any church at all. That the church is held in such low esteem reflects not only the depths of our biblical ignorance, but the alarming extent to which we have succumbed to the obsessive individualism of our modern culture. Chakosa said, it is scandalous that believers would have such a low view, low esteem for the local church. And uh, we would say, yes, that's common, that's pervasive. Having a, really a half-hearted um, semi-committed uh, mindset to the local church is the norm among professing believers today. I would say that the following is a fair and accurate description of far too many Christians in America today, in Orange County today. Professing Christians don't regularly attend church. Their church attendance is situational. Maybe it depends on the weather. Depends on who's playing on Sunday, NFL football. It depends on how tired they are there on Sunday morning, whether they feel like it or not. Uh, if they come, they habitually, regularly come late to church. People who are never late to work, never late to school, they have a sense of integrity about them where they don't, they're not late to appointments. They promise a friend lunch at noon, they're there at 11.45. They believe it's rude to, ha- to keep someone waiting. They, they adjust their schedules. They plan ahead in light of traffic to make appointments on time, and yet for church, they regularly, habitually come late. It's not a time management issue for them. It's a lordship issue. It's a priority issue. It's a spiritual issue. But they're so cavalier. They're so just... Uh, complacent about it, that it's beneath their attention. Not serving the church. Having a disobedient or a flippant attitude to communion and baptism. How about this one? Not being submitted to the elders of the church. They are their own pastors. Self-willed, self-ordained pastors who lead themselves in their own families. They've literally laid hands on themselves appointed themselves, their own church, and they are their own pastors. So they, they want nor seek any accountability. So they have no accountability. They have no covering. They have no one overseeing their souls. So they submit to no one. And thus, many are permanently church hopping. They're not hopping every few weeks, every few months, but maybe every 2.5 years. 
every 2.5 years. We're, we're in a very disposable society. We're used to new things every few years, right? I mean, there's no brand loyalty in America anymore. New cell phones every year. New laptops every few years. You know, it used to be you buy a car and you drive that thing till everything fell off, from the, all the parts fell off. You drive that thing 100, 200, 300,000 miles. Now, every few years, we get a new car. Now, even houses, right? The average length of your stayed in the home in California is seven years. So we, you don't want to even know your neighbors because they're constantly selling and upgrading or moving. They're constantly moving jobs. So that kind of disposable mindset has entered into relationships where you have friends for a while that's convenient, and then you just drop them and move on. It's like, you know, you have your my friends, my space friends, right, or my, Zenga friends, where you have friendships that are convenient. You know, I'll be friends with you on the web, but I'll meet you once in a while for coffee. But if our relationship becomes too inconvenient, then I'm moving on. That kind of mindset is pervasive in our culture, society, and it has infiltrated the church, where believers. Literally, church hop every two, three years. They're uncomfortable with staying in a church more than a few years. They want to constantly looking for a fresh start. Well, we know to the scriptures, especially the book of Acts, that it was not always this way. It was not always this way. A low view and low commitment to the church is not a part of our Christian heritage. When we go back to the genesis of the church, when we go back to Acts chapter 2 and saw the church being birthed and the believers, their love and commitment to their local church, we find out that if one word was to be used to describe, sum up their attitude to the local church, one word would be devoted. They weren't flaky. They weren't complacent. They weren't divided hearted or, or, or they weren't just, uh, they're lacking commitment. If one word was to be used to, their, to, to describe their attitude towards first Christian church of Jerusalem, it would be devoted. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves. There's the main verb in that passage. Main verb in those two verses. Applying to the rest. They devoted themselves. Webster's Dictionary says... To appropriate, it means to appropriate. To concentrate on a particular pursuit, occupation, purpose, or cause. Religious dedication. Zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty, or affection. The Greek word here, proskaterio, talks about a continual commitment. Not a one-time act. Not for a limited duration of a time. It's a present active participle. They were continually devoted, steadfast, enduring in their loyalty to the church. These New Testament believers understood that faith in Christ meant devotion to the local church. You could not separate it. If you're devoted to Christ, devote to the church. And the devotion to the church was an outward manifestation of your inward faith, inward love, loyalty to Christ Himself. Alan Stipps writes in his book, God's Church, Any Idea of Enjoying Salvation or Being a Christian in Isolation is Foreign to the New Testament. Robert Patterson said, Christians need to affirm aggressively the necessary connection 
between faith in Christ and commitment to His church. Let me repeat that, Christians. We need to aggressively affirm the connection between faith in Christ and commitment to His church. Almost one and the same. He continued, One cannot exist without the other. As demonstrated in the book of Acts, where no one was counted as a Christian until he or she was baptized and received into the community of God's people. They weren't considered a Christian until they were baptized. And they outwardly professed the name of Christ by joining a local congregation of believers. These believers knew, believed, and lived out the truth that church is God's gift to believers so that we might grow in our salvation. That justification is just the beginning. That the grand call is for us to be holy, for us to be sanctified, for us to grow up in our salvation. And they understood that the church was God's gift to the Christian so that he or she might continue to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. R.C. Sproul therefore said, It is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to be part of a church to be a Christian. They claim that their devotion is personal and private, not institutional or corporate. This is not the testimony of the great saints of history. And R.C. says, and he concludes, it is the confession of fools. Those who say yes to Christ but no to the church. Those who say, I don't need the church to grow. I don't need the church to mature. I don't need the church in my Christian life. Sproul says, and I agree, that is a testimony, that is the confession of fools. C.J. Mahaney said, spiritual growth and maturity simply will not happen. It is not automatic. Apart from relationships, in the local church. Local church. See, wow. Again, you know, I repeat this again and again. Like a broken record. You, gotta, you guys don't understand that. Broken CD or broken MP3 player. Right? <laughs> salvation is personal. Yes. It's an individual salvation. But this idea of a personal relationship with God is not found in Scripture. It's a corporate relationship with Jesus Christ. You're saved individually, but once saved, God baptizes you to the local church, to the church universal, and, and places you in a local church where it's Jesus and us. Jesus and us. Romans 14, if we, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I mean, there are 39 commands of one another's. Soon throughout the New Testament, telling us that the Christian life is to be lived not in a monastery, not in a cave, not in the prayer closet alone. It is to be lived in the context of a local body of believers together pursuing Christ. Together pursuing Christ. These New Testament believers loved the church, embraced the church, committed themselves wholeheartedly to the church, submitted themselves willingly, joyfully 
the leadership of the elders in the church because they knew that God had rejected Israel because Israel rejected God's Messiah. That God's plan for the world was through the nation of Israel. That they might be a land, a lamp, a light to the world to, to call Gentiles to the faith. But Israel was utterly unfaithful to their role because they rejected Christ. And therefore, God's plan, God's program now is the church. This international gathering of men and women throughout the world gathered on an equal footing by Christ and in Christ. It's worthy of, of quoting him, Robert Sosi, in his book, The Church and God's Program. He said, throughout the course of history, God has worked in the world in a variety of ways. The focus of his present work now is the church. Is the church. It is the primary instrument through which God ministers in the world. As Christ was sent by the Father, so the church bears the ambassadorial role for the Lord as sent ones to the Lord, end quote. That is why when we embrace the church, we're embracing Christ. Because as God sent Christ, Christ has sent us. It is the Lord's church indeed. Matthew 16, 18, Christ said, You are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church. The church belongs to Christ. We are His. So in light of these truths, the believers of FCCJ had a simple response to the local church. And that was devotion. It was loyalty. It was commitment. Let's go to the text and look at them one by one. Eight commitments of these believers. They are indeed models for us. They're indeed examples for each of us. You know, John 17, Christ prayed for us to be kept in the Word and for us to be sanctified so that we might all be one. He was talking about us and the apostles. Us and the first century church. Right? He said, I'm not praying for them, but I'm praying for those who will believe because of their testimony so that they might all be one. God desires Cornerstone Bible Church to be united in doctrine and life with first century Christians. We're not to be innovators. We're not to create something new. We're not to be separate and distinct because we're in a different time, different culture, different age. Christ's prayer is for the purpose that we might be united with them in terms of doctrine and in terms of their practices, in terms of their life. And so we see there are eight practices, eight commitments that are models for us that we should imitate. That should be part of our lives in every way. Well, let's go through them one by one. Go to verse 41. Their first commitment was to be baptized according to Christ's command. Their first commitment was to be baptized. Acts 2.41, so those who received His word, those who became Christians, were baptized. The first obedience of believers is baptism. An outward demonstration of an inward faith. 
It is siding with Christ publicly. Telling the world, I'm on Christ's team. I'm on Christ's side. I have stepped over the line. No matter the cost, even if the rabbis declared anyone who is baptized in the name of Christ will be unsynagogued, excommunicated, rejected and ostracized by the community of Israel, first believers, receiving Christ meant being baptized. And they joyfully, on that day, were immersed in the name of Christ. It was commanded by Christ, Matthew 28:19. Clearly it was practiced by the New Testament church. Book of Acts, the epistles, taught in the epistles. And so, our response must be baptism. If you are never baptized, that's the first commandment you are to obey. A public declaring of your faith and love for Jesus Christ. Today we have more Christians not baptized and more Christians not baptized in the church than ever before in the history of the world. We have all these non-Christians who are being baptized by the church. At the same time, so many Christians who think baptism is unimportant when it is the first commitment given, uh, practiced by the church because it's the first commandment to believers. Second commitment was to formally join the church of Jerusalem. Formally join the church of Jerusalem. Go to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, added that day, about 3,000 souls. Now, I would concede that a formal joining to the church is not a direct command of the scriptures. But I would contend that it is a direct implication of a scriptural principle. That it is a direct implication of a biblical principle. Formally joining a church. Right? Just like there is no command not to, I don't know, paint graffiti on some your neighbor's walls. There is no formal command not to, I don't know, whatever, right? Uh, mess up something, I don't know. Get drunk with Smirnoff vodka or, what do I have here? Gamble away your life savings at Vegas. There's no command explicitly forbidding these things. But obviously these are all wrong. Because a direct implication of loving your neighbor is not is to not you know, graffiti their garage. A direct implication of of loving the Lord and honoring the Lord with your first fruits is not gambling away your life savings. Obviously, you can't say, show me a you know, chapter and verse where it's wrong to graffiti your neighbor. No, there is no chapter and verse, but it's an implication, direct implication from a biblical principle. Likewise with joining the church formally. Formally. Go to the next chapter, Acts 5.13. Let me make this case to you. None of the rest, meaning um, just regular people, dare join them. Join them. Them is a church. The apostles, the Christians in Jerusalem. But the people, but they held them in high esteem. Join them. What does that mean? 
None of them dared to hang out with them. None of them dared to go in their presence or be in their midst. Obviously, he's not talking about physical presence. Obviously, they were in their presence. They heard their teaching. They saw their lives. So much so, they held them in high esteem. They, they knew these Christians. And yet, they dared not join them. What does that mean, join them? They dared not like hang out with them? No. They're not formally be a part of the Christian church through baptism and commitment. R.B. Kuiper, K-U-I-P-E-R, said it is clear that in the days of the apostles, it was universal practice to receive believers into the visible church. What could be more logical? Every believer is a member of the invisible church, the body of Christ. But the visible church is but the outward manifestation of that body. Every member of the invisible church should be a matter of course, be a member of the visible church. While the scriptural rule is not that membership is not a prerequisite for salvation, membership is a necessary, required consequence of salvation. So membership is not required to be saved, but if you are saved, a required, necessary consequence is joining the church, siding with the local body, being under the care of the leaders of the church. I mean, it's clearly expressed in numerous passages. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, Peter urges the shepherds to shepherd those under your care, to care for those entrusted to you, Now, how can these shepherds care for them if they don't know who they are? How can they uh, care, know who who are entrusted to them if there is no formal joining of the church? Historically, commitment to one church has always been a central feature of the faith, a non-negotiable for all believers. And this commitment has been expressed customarily to the privilege of church membership. Throughout the centuries, membership has been the practical way for pastors to know the boundaries of their flock so they can protect and care for it. In fact, in the early church, now some people think our membership process is long. In the early church, membership was so esteemed that instruction for new members could last up to three years. The membership process was three years. It is a necessary consequence of salvation in Christ. I mean, any organization, when I I joined the Boy Scouts when I was 11 years old, went through membership. When I joined 24-Hour Fitness, went through membership, they walked me to the floor and told me the rules of 24-Hour Fitness. I must bring a towel and wipe off my sweat. If I don't wipe off my sweat, they'll expel me for 24-hour fitness. Right, you got a buff guy with 24-inch biceps telling you that. You, you bring your towel, right? You know, when I joined Costco with my wife, they took pictures of us and went through the rules of membership for Costco, right? So they know 
you're a member of Costco. You don't have this card. We don't have your picture. You're not a member. You can't come in. You can't buy our stuff, right? Bulky items. You can't buy it if you're not a member. Same thing with the local church. I mean, I would say the purity of the church, the health and vitality of the church depend on membership. Because how do you know who is part of the church? How do you know who is who can serve, who can lead, who can teach? How do you know who we are to discipline for sin because they are Christians or who we are to embrace and shine our light because they're non-Christians, they're not part of the church and they're lost in sin. So we're not to rebuke them for sinning. They're not Christians. How do we know that? Right? God knows, but I don't know. How do I know? How do elders, how do the shepherds know? It's through the process of membership. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, through 13, talking about the, the value of this distinction for the purity of the church. Paul said, I have, written, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world. When I told you don't associate with immoral people, I wasn't talking about non-Christians. Because if I was, I'm paraphrasing here, you would have to leave the world and live in the desert, in a cave, right? eating wild animals. And some you know, well-meaning believers misinterpreting the Bible have done that. But that is not God's will. He doesn't want us to be separate from this world in that sense. Paul said... When I wrote you, you must not associate with anyone who calls himself, associate with anyone. It's those who call themselves a brother, who call themselves a Christian, and yet they are sexually immoral. They are greedy. They're an idolater. They're a slanderer, a drinker, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those Inside, God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. There is this distinction of inside the church and outside the church. First John 2.19 They left us because they were never of us. If they were of us, they would never have, never have left us. There is us and them, inside, outside, the church and the world. Practically, how do we discern who the church, where the, the boundaries of the church lie? In the boundary of the world, practically, it is to formally join via membership. Without church membership, we can't practice church discipline. Right? Now, I can't fire someone that doesn't work for, you, work for me. Right? I can't. I can't. You know, it'd be wholly improper for me to, right? You know, uh, yell at a child that's not my own. Although I'm tempted to. Not in that cornerstone, but you know, in the world. Not my child. Go play in the street. Go play in the freeway. You know? Play with transmission fluid. No, you're not my child. I'm kidding here. Right? It's not right for me. It's not right for me to um, vote Kim Jong-il out of office. I don't have the authority. Likewise, in the church as well. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, It is our failure as Christian people to understand what our church membership means that causes most of our troubles. Our greatest need is to recapture the New Testament teaching, the dignity, the privilege, 
and the responsibility of membership in the local church. Man, go and see Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? Amen, brother. We need to recapture this high view of the local church by esteeming membership. First century believers definitely did. Their third commitment was commitment to sound doctrine in the context of their local church. Verse 42 again, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching of the apostles. They is all the believers, those who had just accepted Peter's message. They were baptized. There were 3,000 new converts who were devoted to the Word of God, and they were immersed in not programs, not on quiet time methodology, not on discipleship you know, principles. They were immersed in deep theology, apostolic doctrine, a high view of God, doctrine on justification, on regeneration, on predestination, all, all the doctrines of grace. They were immersed in it as young believers, and they were devoted to it, they had deep commitment and devotion to the Word of God. This verse tells us that these believers were continually in season and out of season when they felt like it, when they did not feel like it, consistently we were devoted to hear, study, understand, and apply the apostolic doctrines, the cardinal orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith. The Word of God was the main priority to this church. And that is the proper place in the believer's life. And before everything else, they're really the first devotion. Right? They were baptized by the apostles. They were joined by the apostles. But their first devotion, their first uh, uh, active work was devotion to the Word of God. And it's not by accident the Word of God is first. It's by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that the priority, the emphasis is put in the Word of God, because apart from it, no one can grow. Sanctification is just a daydream without, apart from truth, taught in the local church. Number four. Fourth commitment was to their local church. And they devoted themselves. This applies to all the, all the rest and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And that article, the, before fellowship, koinonia, tells us that the idea here is they were not committed to fellowshipping. They were not committed to, like, you know, lunch after church, you know, Friday night gatherings. They were committed to the fellowship, to the local church, to the believers. They were devoted They were steadfastly committed to the fellowship, to their fellow believers. High commitment to local believers. Meaning the local church was one of their highest priorities of life. Their lives now revolved around the church. Before their lives revolved around, I don't know, what first century Jews, what, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they were involved in, devoted to. Shopping in the malls? I don't know. Um, Jewish soccer? I don't know. Right? But whatever they were centered around, now their lives revolved around the church. Their schedule, 
their priority, their activities, right, was around the church. Their highlight was the church. Right? They, they, they saved themselves during the week. They paced themselves for Sunday. Because they knew Sunday wasn't just go for an hour, show your face and leave. As soon as like, the pastor closes his eyes, they're praying, you, you, you're headed for the door. They understood church was joy. It was a banquet. It was an all-day affair. It's, it's just a day to express your commitment to Christ and to Christ's church. They paced themselves and they exploded on Sundays. Right? They lived, ate, and breathed ministry in the church. And their evangelism and missions was through the local church. I mean, First Timothy 3.15, Paul says that the church is God's household. God's oikos, God's family. Ephesians 2.19, that we are members of God's household. Galatians 6.10 tells us that we belong to the family of believers. So, we're entered into a new family, a spiritual family. Not joined together by blood, not the will of man, but joined together by the Holy Spirit, the blood of Christ. We are all now brothers and sisters with God as our Father. And our Father's expectation is devotion. I mean, a high level of devotion. A high level of commitment. Where the local church is the center of the Christian. John Stott said, if the church is central to God's purpose, and as seen in both history and the scriptures, it must certainly also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? The believers were committed to the church at a great cost to themselves. And that is the example laid down to us. Number five, commitment to participating in the Lord's Supper. In the context of the local church, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Two ordinances were given by Christ, the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These believers knew that these were memorial ordinances to remember the cross of Christ, His resurrection, His ascension, His return. Therefore, they were devoted to it. Devoted to breaking of bread, drinking the cup, and never forgetting the cross of Christ. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why we don't just add the Lord's Supper at the end of our services. We don't want to make it a postscript, an addendum, something just tacking on at the end. I mean, this is why the, the elders and the shepherds, the pastors of our church, we resolve to set aside a whole second hour service for the purpose of remembering the cross to the Lord's Supper. Believing that Christians understand the importance of communion. Understand its significance. Understand for 2,000 years, faithful Christians throughout the world, especially under heavy persecution, even then, refused to give in to this biblical practice commanded by Christ 
and it was passed down to us and that we are to practice it as well. And so we are so encouraged, but it's expected. It's, it's basic Christianity for everyone to stay for second hour, to come to communion. I mean, we don't, you know, like applaud anyone. We don't give out blue ribbons and saying, oh, perfect attendance at communion, you know, put their name on the board. And, because that's mere Christianity. That's a, a basic commitment that believers are to be involved in and expressed here by these believers. Number six, we'll move on somewhat briefly to these few points. Uh, commitment to prayer in the context of the local church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayer life was not just individual, personal uh, commitment. They were committed to praying with fellow believers and praying for fellow believers. Seventh commitment, giving giving to meet the need of believers in the context of the local church. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, proceeds to all as any had need. They didn't consider anything belonging to them. The mindset of sacrificial giving, giving to the Lord, giving to the church, understanding that the church dispenses according to the needs of the believers. It wasn't the idea they gave at the office. They gave to other um, secular entities that they gave to the church by giving to the Lord. And then number eight, it's God's response. So actually there's seven commitments and God's commitment, God's response to the believer's commitment. 46 and 47, God's response was, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Here we see five results of a committed church. First is um, glad hearts, joy. In a single, as Pastor Jason taught you about fighting for joy, and I'm sure he mentioned that fighting for joy, it begins in the local church. This is where you fight for joy. Because when you're committed to the local church, what God does is give gladness of hearts, grants you joy. It is one of the chief effects of faith in Christ. Far from gloom, it bestows joy and believers in the local church, when they gather together and there's just spirit-inspired joy. I mean, you experience this, guys? You know, we experience at our home. I sit there. All of a sudden, I became like a father of three. Like overnight. It's crazy. You know, I was a college kid playing ball any opportunity I could. I, you know, just hanging out eating hot dogs at 7-Eleven like till 3, 2 in the morning. And then I blink and I've got a family. And so we sit around our dinner table and my wife cooked this nice just Korean meal. And, you know, CD was playing Blessed Be Your Name and we're just kind of singing that song and we gather together and we pray together. And then there was just this joy in the family. We were dining together and 
I'm happy, mom's happy, Elizabeth's happy, Emma's happy, and Roger, I think, is happy, you know? And there's this joy. And we say, wow, is it because, you know, I'm good, or I'm so funny, or, you know, mom's a good cook? No, right? It's because of the Lord. It's because of our walk in Christ. Because we're committed to our family, right? There's joy. That's God's response. Likewise, in the church, when you gather together for meals, wherever you guys go, right? Singles go one place and marrieds go home, maybe. <laughs> wherever you guys go, I mean, I would, I, I believe there is great joy there. A lot of laughter, the glad hearts, right? Why? Because that's what God grants to a church where believers are committed to the right things. Deuteronomy 12.1 Moses said, These are the decrees and laws. You must be careful to follow in the land of the Lord, your God, the Father, has given you to possess. There, verse 7, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. These believers experienced that gladness of heart. Just joy in this fallen world because they were committed to the local church. Second result is generous hearts. Now ESV, I don't know why they translated it this way. Other versions rightly translated as singleness of heart or sincere and pure heart. They were satisfied and thankful. Really the emphasis, the idea of not being perplexed, not being anxious, not being confused. There was a satisfied, they were satisfied, they were pure, sincere hearts. There was a singleness of heart where they knew God's will. There was clarity. Being in the church, it awakened them and they see things and everything fits. Right? You know how, and it happens to me, how you, know, you're, you're, you have a struggle, you struggle during the week or you miss church a week or two and it's confusing. Life doesn't make sense. Your heart becomes heavy, right? Your heart becomes burdened. And, and things you can't see clearly. Your mind is up in the air and you can't think clearly and think straight. Then you come to church and you sing. And you see believers and you pray. And the sermon is not that good. It's about something that you don't really you know, understand or applies to you. And the fellowship is not perfect, but there is this clarity in your mind where everything fits. Everything makes sense. It's a spiritual result of commitment to the local church. It's God's work. And these believers experienced it. Right? You experience that where you come to church and everything makes sense. When you're apart from it, your heart's heavy, your heart is full of grumbling, discontentment, you come to the church and those things disappear. It's this result. It's God's work. Third result is they're praising God. I mean, genuine worship. God-centered, spirit-prompted praise. Fourth result, having favor with all the people where the world sees the church and they hate Christ, they hate Christianity, but they give you favor. You have a good reputation. Right? You have a good reputation in the world. Right? And then fifthly, 
salvation of the lost daily added. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I met with a pastor a few months ago. Church has 300 members and he told me they haven't had anyone come to faith in over 12 years. No one has come to faith. No one has been baptized for 12 years. And he was saying, you know, what's the, they don't know what the problem is. They don't know what, what to do. They, they start some programs. You know, he's an older pastor. You know, I'll, I'll be praying for you, brother. That's really difficult. That's, that's hard. That would just, you know, eat me alive. Right? But in studying Acts 2, um, salvation is of the Lord. It's God's work. Our work is commitment to the church. Right? We commit to the local church in these ways. And the Lord adds daily to those who are being saved. So my resolve is, if we go 12 years without anyone being saved at Cornerstone, I need to commit more to Cornerstone. I need to be all the more fervent about the purity of the church, all the more fervent about communion, all the more fervent about the word and prayer and commitment to the fellowship, all these one another's. It's not, let's start an evangelism program, let's go to missions, you know, let's hire a missions pastor. No. It's all, I need to love the church more. The church has to love one another more because salvation is of the Lord. These are high, high demands that the Lord has placed on the church. These seven commitments. Is, is, is God asking too much? Is it too difficult? Are the standards too high? Are the elders... Are we asking too much of the church here at Cornerstone? Well, David Wells said this. Many churches have not learned the lessons that most parents stumble on sooner or later. Churches imagine that the less they ask or expect the believers, the more popular they will be and more contented the worshipers will be. So the less they ask, more popular, and the believers will be more content. The reverse is true. Those who ask little find that the little they ask is resented and resisted. Those who ask much find that they are given much and strengthened by the giving. For it is only as lives begin to intersect in sacrificial ways that the church starts to develop its own internal culture. And it is only in this context that the reality of God will both weigh heavily on the church and be preserved in its life. A church that asks too little, they'll they'll find resistance and face resentment. But a church will faithfully say, deny yourself. Take up the cross. Let's follow Christ. Let's lay ourselves on the line Lay our families on the line for Christ and His church will find that there is great joy, contentment, and it becomes um, an internal culture that brings on the presence of God. Well, to close, for what it's worth, let me share with you my attitude towards the church. My, my attitudes towards the church. You've heard me say this many times and maybe you forgot or maybe some of you never heard it. But I want to tell you, I love the local church. 
I love the institution of the local church. I love everything about the local church. It is literally heaven on earth. It is heaven on earth. It's not because I'm the pastor. It's not because I'm the preacher. I could just be someone, right, mopping the floor at church. I'll be here because I love the church. I love praising God with all of you. It's heaven on earth. I love when anyone says, open your Bibles, and you hear the shuffle of the Bible pages being moved. And believers, all of us, are tuning our attention in this chaotic, fast-paced world to think deeply on one chapter, one passage, one verse, one word. All of us focusing on one word of God's word is pure joy. I love hearing the word of God preached live. There's something extraordinary, powerful, dynamic about preaching that is heard live. Or you can't lower the volume. Right? You can't answer a phone. Right? You're not distracted by, you're not pulled away by anything. You're not, you know, stopping at a red light or making left turns. You're sitting there. And a man of God stands behind the pulpit, opens the Bible, and he preaches. And he won't stop until it's over. And you're stuck there. And it's a joy to be stuck there. Nothing powerful about hearing God's word preached live. I, mean, I love baptism. Don't we love baptism? Don't we love communion? I love the fellowship of believers. Secondly, I love the pastors and shepherds who serve our church. I mean, now, well, do I need to mention their names? They're on, our, on the website. You know who they are. I, mean, I love these men. Um, they are models to me. The Christian faith. They show their love for Christ by living it out in the church. If you only knew how much they sacrificed, how much they personally committed themselves to loving Christ in the church, and if you saw how much they did really, in season and out of season, in public and in private, you would love these men too. If you saw how they labor and suffer God's people and miss their suffering, their cry is more service to Christ, more service to the church. I've met with them privately. I prayed with them with tears, heard their battle stories of disappointments, hurts, and sorrows. I've told them, oh, it's difficult. Why don't you step down from ministry for a while? I know it's been hard. I know you're stretched thin. Why don't you take a break? And their response has been, no, I don't want to step down. I don't want to step aside. I want to be in the field. I want to be on the field. I want to be side by side, battling and serving with you men. Therefore, I've seen with my own eyes their great love for Christ and their great love for you. Therefore, I love them. They're my friends. They're my closest friends. I don't have friends outside of Cornerstone, really. My life, ask my wow. I, I live for... Gazenga, you know, entries. I, I mean, I, I live for the emails. I live for Cornerstone picture blogs. I mean, that's my, that's my fuel. Just seeing your faces during the week, hearing about you. I want to meet with every one of you. I can't. The best I can do is just memorize your Zenga posts, right? 
that's the best, that's the best I can do because I love the leaders and I love the believers of the church and yeah, I love the believers at Cornerstone. And I, I think my heart reflects the leaders of the church and all the members. I mean, I love this body. You say, well, you're the pastor. You have to love us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that's kidding. <laughs> no, that's not true. I, I mean, that's like saying, I love my daughter because I'm her father. No, right? I mean, I, God has given me a love for my child because part of who I am. Likewise, I speak for all the shepherds, all the pastors. We love the church. We're not here to win the world in a sense. We're not here to make a name for ourselves in the world. All we care about, really, all we care, not our jobs, even these lay guys, how much you know, work we have to do, the pastors, not about our ministry. Our love is cornerstone. Right. I mean... We've been together for eight years now. Eight years. Um, and our love for Cornerstone has only grown with time. I ask you, do you love the church of Jesus Christ? Right. What is your attitude to Christ's church? I call you to be devoted to your church. To love Christ's church to lay your life down for Christ's church, to pour out your passions and energies to accomplish God's plan for your church. This is where God has placed you. This is the body that God has joined you to. And this is where God is sanctifying you. This is where God wants you to leave a committed life behind. You want to leave behind a committed life. And God wants you to do it here at Cornerstone. Let's do it together. Father, we marvel at the wisdom of the Scriptures. We marvel at your great design. You didn't accomplish our salvation on the cross and leave us to ourselves. You didn't just put together some things to make a place that will be hospitable to us, sufficient for us until you return. No, you designed and created the church so that your people together might know your joy and declare and reflect your glory, your beautiful glory, your wondrous glory to this world together. Lord, we thank you for Christ's church. <clears throat> Confess and therefore ask your forgiveness for our neglect, our lack of devotion, commitment, our lack of loyalty, affection, and love for your church. We know that you are worthy of our lives. Oh Lord, would you grant each of us to repent this morning where we have forsaken our first love for you, forsaken our first love for your bride, the church. We ask from um, the elders on down, you would revive us. You would um, renew our hearts. You would reform our understanding and our doctrine and our practices. Also that um, as 
we always say that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.